I straddled both academic affairs and uh, student affairs and being able to kind of navigate those those two worlds. And I moved into community engagement professional roles and you know usually I would tell people I was an administrator and I think they have a picture of you then with like you know a pile of beans and you're counting them out one by one and trying to ruin people's lives and things like that and uh wasn't exactly descriptive what I was actually doing. I'm Marisol Morales. I'm Andrew Seligson. And I'm Emily Shield, and this is the Compact Nation podcast. Hey guys, how's it going? good pretty Everybody's good back Tra- north for the polar vortex just in time uh yes and hating it so i'm in <laughs> chicago and uh, we're about to get some deep freeze uh next we, coming days the national weather service hyperbole has really been extreme this week in iowa um like normally their up- updates are just pretty factual this time. I feel like it's been like, this will be the coldest weather in a generation. It's like very, very um, dramatic, which seems appropriate, but they're not, not normally like that. But it's not hyperbole if it's like literally true. <laughs> well, I guess fine, but it's still, it just seems extreme. <laughs> Yeah, yeah well, global warming will do that. Because it's extreme. I know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, a little climate volatility for us this week. Although I have to say, here in Boston, uh, in relative terms, balmy. It's, I think our the coldest day will have a high of 18, which just doesn't really compare to what you guys are getting in the Midwest. Yeah, and I'm questioning why I left California. Mm-hmm. Seems <laughs> when it's smart. Like, 70, 80. Seems smart. But we were all together in balmier weather last week in Atlanta. I thought it was anyway. Everybody in Atlanta was complaining that it was cold cold there, which was hilarious. But we uh, had our national board meeting, um, participated in some sessions for the uh, American Association of Colleges and Universities annual meeting. How'd it go for you guys? It was good to see you there. Likewise. Good to see you as well. Yeah. Uh, I had a a good time in Atlanta. Um, I thought so. Our board, one of the great things about the board of Campus Compact is uh, it's just a lot of great people who are driving forward the kinds of things we talk about on this podcast, the work that we encourage others to do. Um, You know, the members of our board are mostly college presidents who are leading this work and then other related leaders who are supportive. And so it's always fun to get together. We had the opportunity to connect with folks at Emory who hosted our meeting, uh, meet with people leading the work on their campus, from the provost's office, from community engagement side. And uh, yeah, that was great. And then, uh, yeah, I got to see a lot of interesting people at the conference and participate in a really interesting session about 
the first round of our Engage Scholars Initiative, which we have now revived uh, Mm -hmm. through Campus Compact and started with our first regional iteration a couple weeks ago. But this there was a group 10 years ago um, and I got to moderate a panel with Mickey Meyer from Rollins College, uh, Rowena Tomadang from Berkeley City College and Margaret Post from Clark University about their experience 10 years ago and how it's influenced their direction since. And it was a great conversation about their work and about where you know university civic and community engagement is heading. So all in all, uh, good time in Atlanta for me. Yeah, absolutely. Same. And then we also got to connect with other organizations uh, at the conference. Um, so AACNU, Imagining America, the work happening at Tufts, Tisch College. And so it was really great to connect with people, also uh, NASPA, um, on similar projects and ways to coordinate our work uh, in order to move it forward. So, yeah, all in all, great. And, you know, always good being able to hang out with our colleagues from across the country. So AACNU always provides that space to do that. Fantastic. And yeah, the, I thought the board meeting was great. And I got to visit the um, MLK Histor- National Park for the first time uh, for me, which was amazing. Really, really a must visit, I think, for everyone. Um, so, yeah, good times. I also wanted to quick shout out to um, caucus season in Iowa is officially underway. I can say now after last night, CNN had its first Iowa caucus 2020 town hall hosted at Drake University. And I was I got to be there and I was really proud. There were lots of questions from students and even Jake Tapper commented on how thoughtful and intelligent the questions were. So um, Iowans and, and in particular Iowa college students, again, taking their role really seriously and vetting candidates and um, putting important issues on the table. So exciting times. Awesome. So this episode, we are back to our segments, uh, talking through a particular uh, topic in a couple of different ways. And today we're going to talk a little bit about community engagement professionals. So we're going to start with a segment we call... What And we're going to talk about what community engagement professionals means. So a relatively new term to be used um, more commonly across the, the field to term those who are in some way leading, managing, coordinating community engagement efforts on campuses. Um, when I say that, what does it mean to you guys? I know, Marisol, do you identify as a community engagement professional with your um, career history? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I spent 13 years in that type of position between, you know, two different institutions and uh, particularly at my last institution where I straddled both academic affairs and uh, student mm-hmm. affairs, you know, uh, co-curricular um, and being able to kind of navigate those those two worlds um in really concrete ways to work directly with faculty and thinking about the ways to incorporate it into their classes. And then, um, you know, with student affairs to think about um, student leadership and uh, student learning outcomes um, in co-curricular fashion. Yeah, for me, I think, you know, I uh, kind of first chapter of my career was as a political science professor. That was pretty easy to explain to people. Mm-hmm. And then I moved into community engagement professional roles. And, you know, usually I would tell people I was an administrator. 
And I think they have a picture of you then with like, you know, a pile of beans and you're counting them out one by one and trying to ruin people's lives and things like that. And, uh, wasn't exactly descriptive of what I was actually doing. And what I was really doing was work that was about community engagement and connecting people and building programs and uh, envisioning how students could be involved and having students at the table telling us how they could be whatever. And so having some language for that, I think, is is very helpful. Yeah. Do you think the language has evolved in a way that is useful and helpful for the field? I mean, I know when I was on a campus as a VISTA 15 years ago, my boss was a service learning coordinator. Um, When I first started in this job eight years ago, I think the term we were using a lot was community service director. Um, I know we kind of there was some use for a while of community service learning professional, I think. And now it seems like in some uh, ways um, we've landed on community engagement professional now, although the title still definitely very campus to campus. Um, well, I, mean, I think it seems, it's more inclusive, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's broader. So it can include coordinators, directors, anyone really at the institutions who are doing this work and in, in intentional ways that are, you know, relying on best practices. I mean, we've seen, um, a number of examples of not doing this well and the harm that it creates in communities. And so for me, the most important part of this is setting, putting together like a set of standards based on best practices um, that are based on not doing harm or at least reducing that, right? And taking into consideration the power dynamics that we have between institutions and the communities they attempt to to connect with um, and real ways to then begin parsing um, that out. I know I would always say, you know, not every faculty is meant to do this work, right? There are some faculty that I would be like, mm, you're good. We, you know, uh, you're probably not the best person to send out to a community, right? Please stay in your office. Thank you. <laughs> right. And, and there are other faculty who can connect this deeply because they can, you know, to a certain extent, um, put some ego aside and understand like that it's a collaborative uh, process. And so I think this helped to begin to articulate those things and what we're looking for, as well as the body of research that came before and that will come after it. Yeah, I think, you know, it's in some ways, I think we've landed on the difference between job titles and professional categories. And, you know, just as we now have the concept of a student affairs professional, which didn't exist, I don't know, 20 years ago or whatever is the right number. And within that, there are residence life staff, there are student activity staff, there are all sorts of different roles, including some community engagement professionals, right? There's some overlap in those categories. Um, But I think it's good to have the broader category. And then on each campus, the job titles will reflect a whole bunch of things about how community engagement is practiced, where within the institution it's located, um, just how things are divided up. Like you, you know, if you're the kind of place that has 50 people doing this work, uh, you're going to have one set of job titles that are much narrower. And if you're the kind of place that has one or two people, it's going to be much broader, but everybody can fit into that larger classification of community engagement professionals. And that helps guide people toward the resources, the colleagues, the organizations, uh, you know, that will help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think next we're going to move into um, decoding a recent publication in this area. So Campus Compact recently published, uh, along with Stylus, the Community Engagement Professionals Guidebook, a companion to the Community Engagement Professional in Higher Education, a book that came out 
a year or two ago that I know we covered on the podcast. And that's with Lena Distilio and Marshall Welch um, as the authors. Just came out, I think, in December. And um, I've had a chance to read it. I know you guys were involved in, in creating it. I, having gone through it, I really recommend it for anyone who considers themselves to be a community engagement professional, or even um, if if that's who you manage, supervise, you know, have to direct the work of. I think it's a helpful guide to helping folks think about their professional development. I mean, one of the things that I've seen happen with with books like this, with the competencies, with even coming up with the shared language, is just how many folks who do this as their job. Um, appreciate it being described as a thing that they're a part of, you know, being given that identity, um, being given more structure. And I really like, there's a couple ways that, that these professionals are described early in the book, um, as third space professionals, because of what you were saying, Marisol, like this idea that you're not in academic affairs or student affairs, you're, um, connected with the community, but maybe not of the community. Like it's, it's this, you're, you're inhabiting this third space that can be difficult, but also has a lot of benefits. Um, they also use the term tempered radicals, which I thought was really interesting and, um, helpful as a way for folks to think about their role. And they talk about that in a couple of different ways, but in general, it's about challenging the status quo and advancing incremental change in an organization. So taking advantage of strategic opportunities, um, building alliances with like-minded stakeholders, but generally having to temper what you'd like to see because you have to work within, you know, these large institutions and, and make things work that way. So for me, part of what makes the book useful is just the giving folks in these roles different ways to think of themselves and their role that are more... I guess, hopeful, aspirational, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I like about the way this, the particular volume is organized is that it, you know, names these specific uh, competencies. So, like, I'm in a chapter, I have the the book in my hand, and, you know, there's uh, a chapter on institutionalizing community engagement on campus, and it says things like, there's a section called Able to Cultivate a Critical Mass of Supporters, another one called Able to Empower People and Hire and Develop Good Staff. And I I like the idea of saying to people, like, here's some things you want to be able to do, and here's some thoughts about how you can build those skills in yourself. Because I think we're often in all sorts of discussions of professional uh, excellence, we're often quite vague about what what it means to do jobs well. And I think especially for people, I mean, I think, Emily, as you just said, both for people who are kind of building their own skills and also for people seeking to support others along that path, you know, it's really useful to drill down to specific things so you can think about what are the specific steps? What are conferences I could be attending? What are learning opportunities I can take advantage of? Or just like meetings I want to get myself into or other things like that to uh, to kind of take some of the mystery out of how you get better at doing your work, which I think is often, especially in large and complex organizations where the jobs are sort of on the soft skill side of things, it can be hard to see how you can make yourself better and more effective. And it can be mysterious why sometimes other colleagues may be identified that way by people. And I think, again, this this can be a really practical tool for people. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree. And, you know, as we're seeing um, sort of uh, a regular pace to leadership change at institutions of higher education, right? Like maybe presidents that aren't there 20 years, but they may be there five, seven years, right? Or um, upper administration changing, you're always going to be in this place of having to uh, advocate for your program, show the value of it, build supporters. And I think that that's something to remember that this is not sort of um, an area of the university that is um, so established that it can't go away, but not established enough that it doesn't have some relevance. And so the ability to kind of practice those skills and reflect on those, I think, is what um, the book presents us um, with, um, because those changes will will happen. And um the more we're able to understand them, practice them, reflect on them, um, talk to others about them, which I feel is also the value of an organization like ours that has the opportunity for those professionals to get together and, and share um, their experiences um, is how we make sure that it, it continues to be institutionalized and, and supported. Yeah, and I know for Iowa and Minnesota, we're having retreats in February in both states for exactly what you just said, um, to bring folks together to talk about what's in the book and how it impacts how they think about their work. And what's really helpful about the book is that it offers a number of things to facilitate that really good reflection questions. And there's a strong emphasis on a critical lens. Um, In every chapter, there's a set of questions to ask yourself, a group about um, deepening our critical commitments. And that's embedded really throughout. And I think that's an important step forward, too, is just to have that be um, really infused in everything we do in in ways that help people think about their approach. When I started at Campus Compact now almost five years ago, one one of the things I really wanted to focus on and try to kind of move the needle on was uh, the degree to which I felt like people leading engagement work on campuses were often quite marginalized and distant from the yeah, the opportunity to shape change. And I thought that mattered not because I was concerned about sort of the feelings of the people doing the work, although I'm concerned about the feelings of the people doing the work, but because if you really believe that colleges and universities ought to be putting the public purposes of higher education at the center, if the people who are most connected to those values are at the margin, it's just not going to happen. And so, you know, part of our reason for supporting kind of working with Lena and helping to support the research that, that ultimately led to this book, then with, with Marshall Wells contributing as well, uh, the reason that we've begun to build the credentialing program that is now in a pilot phase has been about saying one of the ways we can move uh, you know, this work into a more central position in institutions is strengthening the capacity of the people doing the work, helping them find a strong professional community to, to give them a solid base to work from and to develop their capacities, and making many manifest to themselves and to others within the institutions and beyond what it is that this category of people really knows how to do well that ought to be valued by the institutions. And so for me, it, it you know, this feels like it's part of a larger effort that that has been moving forward. And I think, uh, you know, it's <laughs> as Marisol said, the work isn't done uh, in terms of kind of centering uh, all of this. But I think we you know, we're we're kind of pushing things forward. 
Yeah, and like I've said before, I think you know our credential program, these resources also uh, can be an opportunity to open up the institution to those community partners that we rely so heavily on to service co-educators and you know uh, create an entryway into um, higher ed in professional positions. And so the opportunity to um, have the folks who are on the ground and bring that expertise into the institution, I think our, our credentialing program and our resources can help facilitate that, especially to diversify the field. Um, there's no reason that we shouldn't have um, more examples of um, that diversity or the critical thought or folks connected you know, at the ground level to communities um, than we currently do. Well, this seems like a good opportunity for a credentialing program update. Yes, I can give a quick update on the credentialing program. We launched a pilot in December. We opened up a call. Uh, and so we'd done some research that suggested there were a lot of people who would be interested in such a program. But this was the first time we were really saying to people, do you want to get involved? And uh, we were deluged with people who were interested in being part of this pilot, in which is really focused on the dimension of the program that's about demonstrating competency. We have two of the micro-credentials that constitute the program in the field now. One is called Community Engagement fundamentals. The other is called community partnerships. And so the idea is to learn from how the pilot goes, uh, make some revisions, and then that'll position us to roll out the first four of the micro-credentials for for real, for everybody out there in the world to participate in by uh, late this spring. Right. And um, I think originally we thought there was going to be 50 slots and we had to close registration off early because we had, I think, 62 63 folks who had signed up. So all 62, 63 of them are participating in the pilot um, and really excited by the overwhelming um, response to to the program. So I think we're on to something. Yeah. Well, excited to see the results of that in the next step. Um, quick reminder, you can get the Community Engagement Professionals Guidebook on compact.org. So check that out. Um, again, recommend it for folks in this role or, or thinking about how to craft this role, lead it, that kind of thing. Um, so you may have noticed that our podcast has new music. And so for our bright spot this week, we wanted to tell you the story of how that music came to be. When we decided that we needed some new and original theme music for the Compact Nation podcast, we reached out to Alejandro Ruti, a professor in the music school at one of our great members, the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, which happens to be a leader both in community engagement and in music education and music generally. And Alejandro suggested one of his students, Andrew Savage, as a student composer for this project. And I had the opportunity to chat a little bit with Andrew about the task and how he approached it. So let's hear that conversation now. Andrew, thank you for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast, and thank you even more for composing the new music for the podcast. And I wanted to begin, before we get to talking about that project, just by asking you a little bit about uh, the focus of your studies. I understand you're in music composition, so what's that entail, and what's what, what kinds of things do you like to write? 
Uh, sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm currently enrolled at uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Uh, I'm a senior at senior at UNCG. And um, basically what my degree consists of is you compose music for whatever ensemble that tickles your fancy and you um, you're guided through that by professors. Um, my main professors are Dr. Mark Engelbretson and Dr. Alejandro Rudy. Um, and basically along with just writing music and getting it performed at concerts. Um, you also take courses in music theory, music history, musicology, um, and other, uh, you take ensembles, you take performance lessons on your instrument. I'm a horn player myself. Um, and basically, uh, that along with whatever gen eds you have to take comprise most of the degree. Um, as far as my specific interests, I believe that um, most of my work um, looking forward as I prepare to well, take a gap year and go into graduate studies, um, I'm hoping to go into the realm of concert band music, which is mostly performed by high schools and universities. Um, I also have a heavy interest in uh, film music and uh, library music for, you know, something like the podcast, um, which can basically, in, in the case of library music, you kind of compose it either on commission or at your own leisure and get royalties from it. So that's another good income stream I can tap into. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. And um, so when you say library music, can you, what, what makes it library music? What does that mean exactly? Uh, so I think the term mostly comes from music publishing libraries. Like if you were to find trailer music, you would find it on, um, you know, when you when you hear the phrase like royalty free music, there's that's coming from a, an online library of royalty free, uh, which is basically you pay for it once at a higher fee as opposed to paying royal uh, paying royalties every time it's aired. Um, but for library music, that generally just goes to, you know, you submit it to a publishing uh, company and if they approve it. They start to distribute it, and basically they um, they handle all the royalties payments to you after the fact. And so basically, um, you can compose stuff on your own time, submit it, and you'll just eventually get passive income from it. So we connected with you through your professor, Alejandro Ruti. And so can you just tell us, like, when, when he approached you about this project, how did he describe it or what did you know about what you were trying to accomplish? Initially, um, all I knew up until the initial email from, from Molly, I believe, uh, was that there's this podcast and they need music. <laughs> and that was pretty much all I got initially. I was like, all right, sure. I've got a bit of time. Um, so, and then eventually once the, 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 the Google doc was sent to me with all the, uh, let me actually, once the Google doc was sent to me, um, with all the different adjectives and phrases that you guys were looking for and, you know, link to the podcast and what it's about. I think I got a better handle on what exactly I was um, writing for. And, you know, from the, for someone speaking in like non-musical terms, I guess, uh, the, the way you des describe the things like 
uh, inspiring, optimistic current. Those are actually really helpful for me to translate into a musical context. And what's even more um, better than that is sending links of music that encapsulate those ideas. Those were really helpful when I was uh, referring back to those and figuring out what kind of mood to use and uh, what kind of uh, instrumentation and basically just and and with with that uh, putting my own personal touch on it, of course. Yeah. So what tell me a little bit about just your process as you got sort of those ideas that you mentioned and the examples we sent saying like something kind of like this or I like this aspect of it. How do you go from those ideas to starting to actually write music? Yeah. So I think a lot of it, you know, I start off just by. Well, for, first off, I, I compose in, for this in a in a DAW environment, a digital audio workstation, and I have a, a collection of sample libraries, which are basically sampled instruments that are programmed into a way that you can trigger them with a MIDI keyboard and just play them as if they were in front of you. Um, so for this project in particular, I, I found a short piano sound that I really liked. And I layered that with, uh, with this other, I believe it, it's, I forget where it's from. It's called a ting click. It's like a bamboo mallet instrument. And I thought that was a really inspiring kind of combination. And I just put those two together and that's the initial repeating ostinato. And from there I, um, I just kind of layered on top of that with different chordal ideas and some melodies. Um, I actually, for the first time, I uh, I am not a bass player, but the bass on this is me playing bass. <laughs> I had recently purchased uh, a five-string bass just to mess around with because it was something I wanted to try. And this is the first not too shabby recording of of me playing bass but uh i can assure you it was heavily edited slash rehearsed so it's not all organic as it may seem but um and you know after that uh after i had those initial ideas um and those layers in there i just added a few more counter melodies and percussion uh i mentioned i'm a horn player earlier uh there's a little horn counter melody about two-thirds of the way through that is not me playing either that is actually just a sample library but uh it works just as well since i don't really have a good enough mic to record that efficiently in uh at my apartment um and just the percussion backing as well and just basically I, I eventually just compiled all those things together as they came to me um and just set it up and did some audio editing and went back and forth with dr rudy about some well with your needs and his thoughts on how i could improve it musically and production wise as far as audio goes and well, I, I believe you guys were happy with basically the final draft without anything else. So that's basically how that came to be. 
Yeah, no, we are. We're very happy with it. And I was wondering, since, you know, part of the project, because it was for the podcast, involved these very specific time intervals, you know, where so that it would fit with our introduction, etc. Was is that something you had done before composed in that kind of framework? And how did that affect your thinking? In a sense? Uh, yes, I I've done a few film scores during my time here with the media studies department. I've collaborated with them on a few projects for their students. Um, and that was more composing to picture, which, you know, is very time driven, even more so than something like a podcast where there's not really any uh, hit points you need to line up with. Um, so, yeah, I had done similar things, but not exactly like this, which in a way I actually found a little more difficult because. I'm not really sure why, to be honest with you, but I, <laughs> it was just a different way of thinking about it. Uh, so I had to match up the tempo and make sure that the ideas that I had actually fit with this kind of timeline. I believe I ended up straying a bit from your initial request, but I seemed I just kind of added another section to it and had some options for you that I sent. So. I'm not sure what you'll be using in the podcast, but uh, you've got options there. And if you need more options, I'd be happy to tweak them for you. Well, we, we appreciate that and all, all the work you've done. And Molly, I think our editor, uh, the producer of the podcast, will you know is working with figuring out now how to begin kind of using the pieces. Well, I just want to say, you know, uh, two things that I know uh, that are particularly excellent at UNCG are... Uh, kind of your work in community engagement, which is what we're connected to, and the music school, right, which is a, a very highly regarded. So I love the fact that we could um, kind of bring some of the great musical talent of the music school to this podcast on civic and community engagement. I really appreciate your willingness to jump in on the project. We love the product. And uh, thank you also again for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. Of course, anytime. Thank you. All right, so it has been a while since we did this next segment, but we're going to come back to Pop Culture Corner, where we all talk about something we just like, maybe try to relate it to this work, maybe not, who cares? Uh, Andrew, I'm going to talk about a recommendation you gave me last week. This is very exciting. I know, isn't it? Which is a podcast called, oh my gosh, what is it called? The Finders? What is it called? No, it's called Last Scene. Last Scene. Okay, sorry. Which is a podcast called Last Scene. And they did a whole series on the um, great art heist of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. I binged it last week after your recommendation. It's so good. Um, It's a really crazy, fascinating, unfinished story. And I would recommend that to folks with any interest in art, true crime, Boston, etc. It kind of uh, hits all of those sweet spots. So thanks for the recommendation. Uh, It's my pleasure. And I'll say, you know, with that, come visit the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, uh, where you can see the spots on the wall where all the stolen art is still missing. Yeah. Like this is a recent, relatively recent art heist. And I have visited the museum and seen that. 
and thought, as you said, thought I knew the story a little bit, but there's um, a lot more to it. Yeah. Well, I, when we say recent, by the way, we're saying 27, 28 years ago, it just still hasn't been solved. Still, so I think an, of art heists as being like really old timey. Oh, I see. Not yeah. during my lifetime. Right. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe yeah. that's not accurate at all. But Yeah. And this heist turns out to be kind of old timey, even though it happened in the 90s. <laughs> Fact. Not great uh, security at that museum at the time. Facts, <laughs> we had yes. stepped it up a notch. There's there's some uh, descriptors of who they were hiring as security guards that are amazing, to be honest. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Agreed. Go listen. <laughs> Go listen. All right. What do you guys got? I went to a concert the other night and it led me to start thinking, which is it's a dangerous thing. I'm going to share my thoughts with you. So uh, I went to a concert uh, by uh, a singer, vocalist named Jose James, uh, who's a great jazz and soul and hip hop vocalist. He sings everything from standards to uh, really interesting stuff that he writes. And the tour that he's on right now uh, is based on an album called Lean On Me, which is uh, Jose performing a series of songs by Bill Withers. So for folks who don't know, Bill Withers was a great, I mean, he's still alive, but in especially the 70s, he was a great uh, soul and funk uh, songwriter, singer. A lot of songs you know he wrote, so uh, Lean On Me is one of them. Um, Just The Two Of Us is another. Uh, In many cases, he's done better versions of these than other people who have covered them, I would point out. Grandma's Hands, Ain't No Sunshine. So a bunch of songs that as soon as you hear them, you know that you know them, but you may not know they're Bill Withers songs. And Jose covered these, and, and he wrote a piece, Jose, about why he did that right now. And, you know, it had to do with his feeling about a set of values uh, that were captured in that music about community, uh, about looking out for other human beings, about uh, taking seriously whole Persons and the kind of range of emotions we experience and the need to kind of recapture some of what Bill Withers put on the table in the 70s. And Jose does incredible versions of them, especially live because he works with an extraordinary band um, and has kind of reinterpreted these in interesting ways. And it also made me think of another album uh, by, so it's by a pianist uh, who unfortunately has died since he recorded the tracks uh, named William Appling, doing um, the music of Scott Joplin. And Appling was a brilliant musician in a whole bunch of ways, but he started working with the original uh, scores that Scott Joplin wrote. And what he found when he did that, because he had Joplin's handwritten notes, was that Joplin's music had been dramatically misinterpreted over the years. So if you think of Scott Joplin rags, you usually think of these very up-tempo, kind of fun, silly kind of pieces. And Appling found these notes, which, for example, said that Joplin intended these to be played very slowly, for example. And when Appling plays them, you hear them as great pieces of music that, from Appling's perspective, ought to be seen as alongside Beethoven and Bach. And part of his understanding was that as an African-American musician, Joplin was easy to oversimplify and minimize. And the musical community just didn't want to wrestle with the idea that this was a serious composer who was digging deep into composition in the ways that those great European masters were, etc. And so um, anyway, I was just thinking about those two 
kind of recoveries of uh, these important historic composer songwriters in ways that were about understanding who they were and what was really captured in their music and taking them out of kind of superficial pop culture, but keeping them in pop culture and recognizing that there was a lot of deeper stuff going on. So uh, William Appling's recordings of Scott Joplin's Rags and Jose James' Lean On Me. I, the, the Scott Joplin was the first things I learned on the piano. I think it is for a lot of people, but so I did play it really slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Applin would have been, would have been proud. Not, not, <laughs> not as intended at the time, I guess. I was ahead of my time. There we are. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Groundbreaking. Yeah. Marisol. Oh, so for me, it's all about uh, TV and Netflix. So when I'm not working on my dissertation and I'm procrastinating and uh, going into sort of uh, detachment mode, uh, I sit and watch Netflix. So I'm really excited about a um, show on Netflix called Diablero, which is um, kind of like Supernatural, but based in Mexico City. And it's about um, this kind of crew of uh, ragtag folks who uh, vanquish demons and one includes a priest uh, a young woman who uh, demons possess her a uh, santera and the diablero and it's actually pretty awesome um, it's in Spanish and with English subtitles so it's been fun to, to watch um, and then in general just really impressed by um, the increasing amount of like um, diversity, especially on TV series that I'm seeing lately. So like the reboot of Charmed, as I mentioned before, are all um, women of color, um, uh, Latinx folks, uh, Afro-Latinas. Um, and so just um, really happy to finally see some representation uh, on on TV, um, more so than, you know, we're seeing in the movies. But and with that, uh, Black Panther uh, won the SAG yes. Awards and is uh, contending for a lot of uh, the Oscar nominations. So really excited yes. about that as well. Setting so. uh, new ground for superhero movies too. Absolutely. So cool. And if you haven't had the cha- uh, chance oh, to amazing. see the um, Spider-Man uh, movie, that one was awesome um, as well. It was a cartoon, but again, like um, a young boy uh, who is uh, Afro-Latino and uh, Puerto Rican and, and, and African-American. And again, just the increasing amount of representation. Uh, so very excited about that. Well, thanks for listening today. Uh, it was great to be with you guys. Um, hit us up. Hashtag Compact Nation Pod podcast at compact.org. Let us know what you think of the book. Let us know what you think of our pop culture choices. Maybe not. Uh, let us know what you'd like to see us do on future episodes. Follow us, rate us, review us, all that good stuff. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. And before we go, just a plug, if uh, you haven't had a chance to check these out, we have a Campus Compact National Webinar Series. Uh, We've been doing about one every month. Um, All the previous ones are available on our website, compact.org, if you search webinar. But our upcoming one is on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Uh, It's called What Went Wrong? A Partnership Analysis Framework. So looking at community partnerships. And then another one on February 19th, Integrating Civic outcomes across a major program curriculum design and mapping for civic learning and we have um, more webinars uh, coming up uh, till the end of the academic year so just encourage you to sign up uh, and check out our uh, our webinars 
And just to make clear, it is not Campus Compact's position that most people should spend Valentine's Day focusing on what went wrong when they think about their partnerships. (laughs) Or maybe they should. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. And remember, until you're satisfied that the world is good enough, keep doing something.